these days when I write poems, I really sit down and I don't know what I'm writing, gonna write about. I have a feeling that's like a feeling like low-grade anxiety. That's poet Matthew Dickman, and you're listening to Art More Than Ever, a podcast from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. I'm Erica Heilman. Matthew Dickman is an American poet who hails from Portland, Oregon. He's the author and co-author of several books of poetry for which he has earned boatloads of awards. His poetry has been compared to the wide open free verse of Whitman and Frank O'Hara. It's full of grief and sex and effusive joy. Dickman grew up in a working class neighborhood called Lentz in southeast Portland. Lentz is a rough place and many of the stories and images in Dickman's poetry originate there. Our conversation begins in his hometown of Lentz. Welcome. What class are you from? I would say low middle class. I laugh because I love these distinctions that people <laughs> right. come up with. So what does that right. mean? What is, what is lower well, middle class for, for you? Me, it, for me, it means I had um, a house that always had food in it. And I, had a, I, lived in a, I grew up in a house that always had running water, that always had heat. And that's because I had a mother who worked you know, two jobs at times to uh, make that happen. You know, I mean, we were getting government assistance back before there were like cards that you swiped at the grocery store. You know, back when you, you received what looked like monopoly money, brightly colored, <laughs> green, red, yellow. Yeah, so, you know, there's that experience of going through, you know, the aisle, checking out with your parent, who then has no choice but to declare, you know, what part of the social strata they're in by this, like, funny-looking money that they're handing over to the um, cashier. And the other households were very seemed very different from ours because they were many... Well, there are some similarities. Many of them were single-mother um, households, but they were moms with addictions, heroin, alcohol... Even the one, the households that had fathers, you sort of wished it was a single mom household because the fathers were often violent, you know, gone for days and then showing up at three in the morning, that sort of thing. How did that past or that, that childhood mm-hmm. impact how you approached poetry or, mm-hmm. or the world of poetry? Mm-hmm. Well, in one way, it made poetry, my first experiences of poetry, it made them, um, I guess I would say, sacred in, their, in the secret of them, which is to say that none of my friends growing up, well, none of us really read. And my friends in the neighborhood, they weren't writing poems and sharing poems, partly because they never had adults in their lives that presented anything like that to them, partly because if you're living in crisis, you don't have a lot of time for anything else but dealing with the crisis. Uh, my brother and I were really, really lucky in that in high school, like sophomores in high school, a couple things happened. One, my brother and I you know, both had crushes on girls that were into poetry. So we knew if we even feigned interest in poetry, that was probably a good thing. And then we had a teacher who really became like a real, and is a real father figure for both my brother and I, named Ernie Cachado, who uh, was our English teacher and drama instructor. 
he he saw that. You know, he he saw where we were from. You know, he introduced us to uh, the beatniks and and to poets that you couldn't find in the library at our high school. And when I read some of those poets, when I read Allen Ginsberg, I read Anne Sexton. I couldn't believe that people were writing down their feelings, that people were being vulnerable in some way, and that people talked about the stuff that they were talking about in these poems. Because back in the neighborhood, you didn't talk about anything vulnerable at all. And and I liked how it felt to do that. And I think now as an adult, when I think back on it, I think it's also a wildly important experience for a boy to have in that neighborhood because boys in that neighborhood were raised in a certain way in a certain way how to deal with their emotions which was almost strictly through fighting something that poetry really taught me which was an exact opposite of what the neighborhood was trying to teach me were things about empathy and compassion actually even like reading and sexton and Sylvia Plath and like really liking their poems, having a respect for women that really wasn't taught to boys in my neighborhood. I also think that poetry was a teacher of mine about how, how I could be a young man or how I could be a man at all and not be a complete dick, <laughs> you know, and not like I could be a man that doesn't go around killing everything in its life, you know. I, I could still be a guy, but I could do it in a different way. Did you ever fight? Who? You. Did you ever fight? Get into fights? Oh, yeah. Were you a good fighter? I was okay. I mean, I got beat up a bunch. You know, I was like in the middle. Like, I wasn't a great fighter, partly because I didn't grow up in a household where there was a lot of physical abuse or fighting. I didn't have that instinctual kind of thing with fighting in the house. You had to have that just being a boy in the neighborhood. I mean, by the time Michael and I were 14, we'd already seen like a stabbing. We had seen uh, really fierce fighting where the person doesn't get up from the ground. Um, We had been around friends with guns. We had held guns, shot them above the heads of other kids in the park to scare them, you know. Uh, Yeah, crazy stuff like that. It's actually like sitting here in the library at Vermont College of Fine Arts in Montpelier, Vermont, after publishing a couple of books of poems and living a very different life. It, it seems so strange even talking about these things because they, they don't feel far away from me. They just seem so insane. All right, let's go back to poetry. So, yeah, so poetry, well... We were talking about where they come from, but, I mean, you talked about uh, this funny or this trick that you do, or it sounds like a trick to me. Mm. Uh, In one of your interviews, you talked about, you know, writing down six words and using those words, including those words in a poem. And I'm wondering, is that a way of backing into the kind of subterranean realm that is where a source of a a real idea that's waiting, but you can't find it? Yeah, so, like... um, I want to sit down and write a poem, but I don't really know what I want to write about. So I'll just pick six or seven random words out of six or seven random books, write them on a little piece of paper, and I'll sit down and look at those words, and then I'll just start free writing. And 
what's happening is that my consciousness, my critical mind, I've given it this like dumb job to do, which is you have to fit all seven words in the poem. So now that that's busy, that part of me that if I didn't give it a job would be like, you can't write poems, you, you have nothing to say, what are you even thinking about? So that part's busy, which allows my subconscious, you know, really my myself with a capital S, to get some breathing room, get its head above water, and say something that is actually worthwhile, right? So... And do, when you're in the process of doing that, can you, is it a, is it a physical sensation that, uh, I mean, you're describing, yeah. you know, a liminal state, right? Mm-hmm. Is that a physical experience? It is, yeah, I think it is. Like these days when I write poems, I really sit down and I don't know critically what I'm, what I'm writing, gonna write about. Um, I have a feeling that's like a feeling like low-grade anxiety that I wanna sit down and like get this out of me. And I, I want to make a poem. There's some sort of creative, low-grade anxiety energy in me, which I have chosen to believe is a note to the self to sit down and make something. Um, a, a kind of like a clear example of this is in my second book, in Mayakovsky's Revolver, there's a poem called Coffee. And it was this experience. You know, I was, I was feeling like edgy and like I wanted to sit down and like write something didn't know what I was gonna write about. I was sitting there for a couple seconds drinking coffee. And I was just thinking, fuck, I love coffee. I mean, it was just that, you know. And I sat down, I started thinking about what I knew about coffee and kind of like free writing about it. And uh, kind of allowing myself to be free associative in it. And then I remembered how coffee smells when it's being roasted. And it smells like, and I say this in the poem, but it smells like burnt toast to me. And then that reminded me of walking by the hospital where my older brother would end up in sometimes because there was somewhere near the hospital, there was a, a roaster. And I would walk by the hospital and I would have this experience where I'd be thinking about him knowing he was in the hospital and then also smelling you know, the burnt toast smell of coffee being roasted. So then the poem becomes about my older brother and his eventual suicide. And that's all really, in essence, stemming from sitting down and being like, okay, I'm gonna write something, and then thinking, coffee's awesome, <laughs> you know? You know, you talk about that anxiety, and are you saying that um, a state of discomfort yeah. is what cues you yeah. to write? right. That's so interesting to me. I guess I wondered if, if you had to, a pie chart of the from beginning to end of the making of something yeah what percentage of that pie chart is discomfort 50 percent or more the, like i like i should say that like on the completion of writing something it doesn't all it doesn't necessarily feel like a release because often i've ended up exploring something that just brings on more discomfort in a way I mean, i'm glad i wrote it and also most of the time i have fun writing it even if it is discomfort even if i'm writing about or writing out of an experience, a traumatic experience in my life. There is some joy always for me in the making of the poem, but it doesn't necessarily at the end of writing a first draft make me feel like, ah, great, that's, you know, that's past. I mean, people talk about this stuff in a vague way, partly because it's vague, which is like, when do you know a poem's done? Or when do you know 
something's finished. And people have a bunch of answers to that. And my answer has changed here and there. But but right now it's it's like I I know a poem's done when I'm just like I'm just kind of emotionally done working on it. Now, it may not be the best poem I could write, uh, and it may need a lot of work. But I'm done with it. Like I'm not a very good parent with my poems. Like my poems turn 18, out of the house. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I don't have that interest. Will you read coffee? Sure. You said that your brother, your older brother, committed suicide. Mm-hmm but that he was periodically in the hospital. Why would he be in the hospital? Well, he was in the hospital for um, attempts at suicide, and he would be hospitalized for manic behavior and things like that. And towards the end of his life in our, I mean, I almost said in our relationship, which isn't true because our relationship continues. But um, there were times when I just couldn't do it. I couldn't go visit him again. You know, I just couldn't go visit him again. It's a you know it's a thing when you have a loved one who's an addict. Uh, you you can go through years of that person getting better and then not better and then better and not better and promises to get better and promises to get better and, and I decided at some point that I would of course always be there for him. You know if I got a call in the middle of the night and he needed some sort of saving in that moment, but that I I couldn't do the daily you know, the daily with him, I had to, I had to have some bound, boundary of some sort. There's a very loud plow. Yeah. It sounds like it's about to be in the room with us. <laughs> so of let's course, wait. the minute I talk about boundaries, there's some loud plow being like. <laughs> let's wait till it yeah. moves on. Seems quiet. Let's try it out. Let's try it. Coffee. The only precious thing I own, this little espresso cup, and in it a dark roast all the way from Honduras, Guatemala, Ethiopia, where coffee was born in the ninth century, getting goat herders high, spinning like dervishes, the white blooms cresting out of the evergreen plant. Ethiopia, where I almost lived for a moment, but then the rebels surrounded the capital, so I stayed home and drank coffee and listened to the radio and heard how they were getting along. I would walk down Everett Street near the hospital where my brother was bound to his white bed like a human mask, where he was getting his mind right and learning not to hurt himself. I would walk by and be afraid and smell the beans being roasted inside the garage of an old warehouse. It smelled like burnt toast. It was everywhere in the trees. I couldn't bear to see him. Sometimes he would call. He wanted to sit across from each other, coffee between us, sober. Coffee can taste like grapefruit or caramel, like tobacco strawberry, cinnamon, the oils being pushed out of the grounds and floating to the top of a French press. The expensive kind I get in the mail. The mailman waking me up from a night when all I had was tea and watched a movie about the Queen of England when Spain was hot for all her castles and all her ships carved out of fine Spanish trees went up in flames. While back home, Spaniards were growing potatoes and coffee was making its careful way along a giant whip from Africa to Europe, 
where cafes would become famous, and people would eventually sit with their cappuccinos, the barista, talking about the new war, a cup of sugar on the table, a curled piece of lemon rind, a beret on someone's head, a scarf around their neck, a bomb in a suitcase left beneath a small table. Right now, I'm sitting near a hospital where psychotropics are being carried down the hall in a pink cup, where someone is lying there and he doesn't know who he is. I'm listening to the couple next to me talk about their cars. I have no idea how I got here. The world stops at the window while I take my little spoon and slowly swirl the cream around the lip of the cup. Once I had a brother who used to sit and drink his coffee black, smoke his cigarettes and be quiet for a moment before his brain turned its armadas against him, wanting to burn down his cities and villages before grief became his capital with its one loyal flag and his face, perhaps only his beautiful left eye, shimmered on the surface of his Americano like a dark star. Your poetries are your, your poetry is visceral. Um, when I go to a museum, I don't know much about art, but I know what I feel, yeah. and that is as simple as it has to be. And I wonder yeah. why it has to be so complicated with poetry. People. Yeah. I think it's because it's um, poorly taught when we're younger yeah. here in the States. You know, poetry is taught in grade schools as kind of like puzzles or conundrums. So they're presented, so okay, this is a poem by Robert Frost, and, you know, it's called Birches. But it's really not about birches. <clears throat> now, you're not going to be able to figure it out right away. So we're going to read it, and then the adult in the room is going to, like, tell you, you know, what do you think, you know, is going to ask you, is going to quiz you. Yeah, so so first of all, it's presented as as a, a conundrum. Then you got to take a fucking test, and then if you pass the test, what you get to enjoy the poem. I mean, like, who wants that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, nobody wants that. And I think that's why I think poetry should be taught in reverse. Uh, I don't think the first poems students uh, in grade school or middle school or high school first poems they should read. I don't think they should be Tennyson or. Whitman or even Dickinson I think you start with the exciting poems that are being written right now that especially in high school that those kids can relate to I mean kids in high school are going through so much their bodies are changing <laughs> you know there's like uh, they're having romantic physical experiences for the first time uh, all these things are happening and then you're gonna give them frost <laughs> Here's your intro to poetry. So I think it's, I just think it's mistaught. I think the people who are teaching it are doing it often with the best intentions. But um, I think as long as it's taught like that, we'll always be in a place where poetry is considered a secondary literature. In the arc of making something, where does self-doubt live? More and more in the making of stuff, I don't have a lot of self-doubt. Uh, and that's, I think, partly because I've tried to even consciously put my creative experience before the product of what comes out of my creative experience. So I tell you, like, where I have a lot of self-doubt is, like, reading any of these poems that are published in these books. 
you know, any given moment of the day or, you know, I could open it up. I could just be like, these suck. <laughs> you know, they're just like, how did I ever get published? Like, really? And um, not, and, and it can happen. It could pop up in a reading. I could be in the middle of a reading a poem. I could just think, oh, man, this is not good. But more and more, I, I want my experience making art to be interesting and to be dynamic for me. However that shows up from poem to poem. I, I'm more interested in that than whether I'm writing good or bad poems. Do you ever f feel, um, I mean, essentially you are, you are mining your life mm -hmm. and your, what you, yeah. do you ever become cynical about looking at the world, looking for material? Right. I don't because I don't look for material. Any poet who listens to this podcast will know this experience, which is like you're going along with someone. You know, for me, it's usually my amazing mother. <laughs> You'll be going along. She'll see something or there'll be something that happens. She'll say, you should write a poem about that. That would be a, that'd be a good poem. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. So I believe that you can write a poem about anything, but not everything needs to be a poem. And actually, talking about subject matter, especially my, in my second book, Mayakovsky's Revolver, which really you know, does immediately center around my older brother's suicide. It also touches on a couple other friends' suicides, grief in general. And then this new book, Wonderland, that will come out sometime in 2018, is about you know, the violent relationships between parents and children in the neighborhood I grew up in, friends of mine. It's about addiction, it's about race, uh, it's about class. Most of the poems that people have talked to me about that meant the most to them, I would, ha I would happily, how do I want to say this? I would happily give, I would happily have all the poems I've ever written totally taken from me forever if I could have an hour with my older brother again. If I could know that all my friends I grew up with and loved when I was 11 and 12 aren't heroin addicts or skinheads and they're good and fine I would give up everything for that you know I mean in a way it's a reaction it's just saying no 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 I'm not using this material I'm writing this material but yeah. I would give anything to not have written this material exactly. that's exactly it yeah that's a much clearer way to say it yeah to totally that would be great right. you know I would right. do that right yeah okay now I understand yeah. you know I definitely hope that you can read the, the um, recent poem that you published in the Trump week. When and how did you arrive to writing the poem that you wrote about the election? Uh, I arrived at it, a, a good friend of mine, a poet uh, in Massachusetts named Matthew Lipman. He contacted me and he said, you know, I, I, I want to do something. So Matthew Lipman decided he wanted to make a website that published a poem a week for Trump's full time in office, whether that's four years or eight years, and have those poems be responses to his presidency. They could be a call against it. They could, you know, they could be whatever the poet wants, but just a place that documents the poets in America right now and what they're thinking and, and feeling about things. It's great. It's um, his website is called lovesexecutiveorder.com. And 
I was the first poet to be published on it, and then um, another poet just got on. Will you read it? Sure. The 45th Sutra. I stood on the bridge a very long time, long enough so it wasn't a bridge anymore. And anyway, I feel like we can't even say the word anymore because that word is like a horse, but with its skin on the inside and its organs on the out. Beneath the bridge, there was water or there was a freeway and people driving to work with coffee. The weather in the windshields held pollen from America, the bodies of insects, green, green guts. People who look like me for hundreds of years have beaten, raped, and killed people who look like you. And now we want you to explain what we did. We want you to explain it to us. I was raised to think I own the moon. People who look like me think everything is ours, all of it. We think it's all ours, both the killing and the being killed. When I was 12, I took a shovel and smashed five double bubble pink baby mice because their mom was dead and that's what I thought I was supposed to do. I owned the mice, but only after I killed them. Their thimble-sized heads, their marshmallow lungs. Before me, only the earth owned them. I bought them for almost nothing but a piece of me, a sliver the size of an eyelash that has grown into the size of a birthday cake. Before I owned the moon and the mice, I owned my mother. That was because of the milk. And if I shit or peed, she would wash me. She would draw a cool rag over my anus and penis. Later, I was older and in the fifth grade and read about Hitler and couldn't stop thinking about him and drew a swastika into the dirt on the hood of my mother's car. And when she saw it, she wiped it away and spanked me. That's when I owned her again that moment her hand came down. Boys are raised to love their mothers, but hate women. I once saw a television show where a man ate his own face, his own face, slowly. I remember feeling really sick about it. Inside the moon, there is moon guts. Inside the mother too. Inside me, there are miles and miles of excuses, like intestines, a golden ram, and all the money men like me are on, but with powdered wigs. No one follows me around when I shop, because I own the security cameras with my skin. The yellow grass in my old neighborhood washes over all the yards like a dry yellow towel. The dandelions, green stalks, throats. The sky is blue until it rains. The yard steaming like a cigarette, a drop of water is put out. And here, sweeping through us, like lotto tickets, lighters, bills, post no ills, a seed in the mud is drowning to make itself more real. When babies are born, There's no difference for them between their own bodies and the body of the mother. None. 
for 8 to 12 weeks, which means all boys begin their lives as women. They are complete, and then they are not. When the new president became the president, we all just stared at the screen. We were watching like we were seeing something horribly true about who we were, and that was true because we were. I wanted so much to shove a needle in my arm. I wanted to stand up at the ceiling. I wanted to stare up at the ceiling and see nothing but stars. I felt so sick. I wanted to have a vision, some kind of angelic western burning bush, the sky all television, ash and dynamo, blue lights flickering, God up there, vision. But we just made some eggs. We made toast and coffee and went back to the screen to watch the people on it talk about what just happened. It was like they had to eat their own faces. Oh, my friends, I wanted so much to give you good news. I wanted to. I really did. You've been listening to Matthew Dickman, Matthew is a professor at the Vermont College of Fine Arts Writing and Publishing MFA program. He's also the poetry editor of Tin House and the author of a number of poetry collections, all of which you will find links to on our website, vcfa.edu. The music for Art More Than Ever is from Scott Barkin, a guitarist, songwriter, and also a graduate from the VCFA composition program. Links to his work can also be found on our website, vcfa.edu. If you like the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes or spreading the word in your social media sphere. This helps new listeners find the show. This is Art More Than Ever, a podcast from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks for listening.